0: Good morning, everyone. Great, great to see you today. Um, we certainly had a banquet uh, in the previous session from Romans chapter 8. I remember um, when I was in that first year of Bible college, remember you may have heard me mention that I was um, questioning my salvation and needed to be reassured that the Bible was absolutely trustworthy. And uh, during that time, I um, read a book by a British journalist named Frank Morrison And he was a skeptic and he actually tried to disprove uh, the resurrection of Christ. He tried to disprove the gospel. And so he thought that wouldn't be too much trouble. So he started to investigate uh, the scriptures and do research. But the more he researched, the more he realized that the four witnesses of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had such integrity that the only valid explanation is to believe that Jesus Christ actually did rise from the dead. And he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? Who moved the stone? So he became a uh, a believer through studying the Gospels and became absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ conquered death. And he ended up writing a book defending the faith instead of criticizing it. And so the resurrection has been very meaningful uh, in my life. And In the passage that uh, Brother John just preached on, Romans chapter 8, verse 11, is uh, uh, a special verse to me in that chapter where it says that, If the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will give life. I believe he's talking about um, vitality, uh, strength, spiritual life, victorious life to our frail bodies by his spirit that lives in us. So the same confidence we have that Christ rose from the dead that verifies the word of God in the gospel also verifies that you and I can have this abundant life that this conference is celebrating. Amen. Well, We've been talking about how to share the message of victorious life in a way that is more of a practical, people helping process. And one of the ways to do that is what we call the wheel of line diagrams, uh, designed by my friend and mentor, Charles Solomon. And uh, just a brief review from those uh, who were here in previous sessions. We talk about this um, wheel diagram as a way to remind us that God made you with a body, with a soul, with a human spirit. And the question mark represents the question, what are you depending upon to be fulfilled in life? That can be many different things. You might depend on your own strength, your job, what other people think about you. And so uh, that's the key issue. We talked about how before the fall, the way God designed us would be that our spirit governs our soul and our soul governs our body. That's how we're designed to live, to be spiritually integrated people. However, due to Adam and Eve's sin, we're born into this world needing salvation And the essential blessings that God gives us would be salvation through faith in Christ. We can have assurance of that. Amen. We can have security knowing that he will never leave us or forsake us. We have acceptance in Christ to know that he welcomes us. We're not on probation. Uh, We have Christ's righteousness credited to us. And that leads us to this fifth concept, which we call total surrender. And it's not automatic when we're uh, a new believer. Often it takes a while. Sometimes years before we really come to terms with the verse we read last night, Romans 12, 1 and 2, to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. So the idea of Christ moving into the center, he's already in the core of our being, but is he our functional source of life? Is he the center of our life in the sense of being our life source? That's what our Christian counseling approach is addressing. So we also talked about how uh, the disappointments of life, such as rejection, such as abuse, such as feeling like we never measure up, Uh, whatever those disappointments may um, be in your personal experience, they very commonly cause these type of emotional and mental problems, like feelings of inferiority or inadequacy or insecurity. We often try to compensate by living life our own way, and that causes guilt, and then worries, doubts, and fears get worse. We have not only the baggage from the past, but the pressures from the present, which really cause frustration. And who likes frustration, right? So that rebounds into hostility, anger. And um, if we internalize that, then mental illness can set in, emotional problems get worse, like anxiety and depression. Real cheery subject, isn't it? Uh, We talked about how even physical problems can be caused or made worse by that kind of psychological tension. But all that is simply diagnostic so that we see that self That concept of the S in the center is the root problem. And friends, if we can really understand this, if you can actually memorize most of this diagram and share it with someone, you'll be amazed at how God uses it to show people that if self is the root problem, and it is, then if Christ could be our source of life, then things could radically change for the better. And that is exactly what God promises. King David put it this way, he restores my soul. Now, sometimes that happens in a crisis experience as it did with my friend Charles Solomon in October of 1965 where his depression and anxiety lifted as Galatians 2.20 went from his head to his heart. But more commonly, it's a more gradual process of renewal and healing. And we can expect uh, God to give us peace and joy as we claim by faith our co-crucifixion and co-resurrection with Christ. And even uh, stress-related health problems improve man that I was counseling, uh, had a lot of rejection and hurt growing up, came to know Christ in his late teens, became a a musician, was involved in a church. But um, the the church he was involved with was very much a performance-based church. And after a decade, he basically burnt out. And his uh, marriage was on the rocks. He came for counseling. And he uh, really didn't have a grace perspective of Christian living. And as we walked through the process, God opened his eyes, to his new identity in Christ. And he came to rest in Christ as his life source. And after a few weeks and his spiritual breakthrough, he called me on the phone one day. He said, John, guess what? What, Tim? He said, my headaches are gone. I said, headaches? I didn't know you had trouble with headaches. He said, every day for two years, I've been taking medication for headaches. My headaches never left. They are gone. So as God gave him peace in his soul, the tension that was causing the headaches was removed and the Lord healed him. So um, it's really wonderful to see that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So we had talked also about the what we call the line diagrams, and the line diagrams are basically uh, a way to explain uh, the Romans six, seven, eight message that we've been hearing. We talked about eternal life being God's life; it has no beginning and no end. How Christ left heaven's glory. The stick figure represents Christ. He clothes himself with human nature, lives a sinless life. Why? To die on the cross to redeem us. And that's the familiar gospel message. But as we take a closer look at the gospel, we see that when you and I were born, we were born in Adam's lifeline with some major baggage, right? That uh, included being condemned because Adam, our representative, broke God's covenant. Uh, That included being headed for hell. It included having an identity based upon whatever we could uh, form based on our situation in life. And we're shackled by, by the authority of sin. Not, not good. So, but God loves you and I so much that he sent Christ to redeem us. And when Christ saved us, he didn't just forgive our sins, although he did, praise the Lord, but he took you and me out of Adam and he grafted us into this eternal lifeline. And this is so awesome to grasp that we are in Christ and he is in us. And so instead of being headed for hell, now we have a destiny of heaven after this life. But also instead of being condemned for our sins because of Adam's rebellion and our own sin, we have total pardon. Amen? Isn't it awesome that Christ paid for our sins past, present, and future? Let me ask it this way. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, how many of your sins were future at that time? All of them, right? He didn't just die for your sins that you committed before you became a Christian. He died for your sins that you haven't even committed yet. Now, that doesn't mean that we should take sin lightly. It means we should take grace abundantly and be motivated to live this new quality of life. So since we're in Christ, we have a new identity. Your identity isn't based on what other people said about you. It's based upon what God says you are because of this spiritual union you have with Christ. And through that spiritual union, the old you was crucified with Christ and buried. And as they say in Japan, sayonara. (laughs) Say goodbye to that old you because that's not you anymore. You were raised with Christ. So the very power, the resurrection life of Christ is in you. And because you've been seated with Christ in heavenly places, you have authority over your spiritual enemies. And friends, when we accept that by faith, transformational change can occur. I remember when I first read the book that these diagrams are taken from, when I got to the last chapter, it gave a chapter of testimonies. And I was so inspired to hear about uh, the transformational change that occurred in counselee's lives through that. Now, little did I know that in the years following, I'd be seeing that transformation up close and personal as God used his word in people's lives, which I am so inspired by. And other stories I've heard from my friend, Dr. Solomon, it includes one that I mentioned at lunch uh, with Pastor David and and Brother John, about a woman who called Grace Fellowship Counseling Center and asked, do you make house calls? And Dr. Salman said, no, we don't, uh, but why can't you come in here? She said, I'm too miserable to come in there. He said, well, you might as well be miserable here as there. (laughs) She didn't think that was too funny. Um, But um, he said, why can't you come in? And she said, because... I am too afraid to leave my own home. Psychologists call the term agoraphobia, which means that she is so afraid she can't even leave her own home. She had been virtually a prisoner in her home uh, for quite a while. And he said, if I sent you some literature from our counseling ministry, would you read it? She said, I certainly would. So someone dropped off a copy of Handbook to Happiness, which these diagrams are from, and his book called The Ins and Out of Rejection, which talks about how a lack of meaningful love does trigger emotional and mental problems and relational conflicts. Well, she read those books and opened her heart to God. And friends, the Lord met her in her living room, even without going to a counselor. And God opened her eyes to her truths of her oneness with Christ. And her breakthrough was so significant that two weeks after her spiritual breakthrough, she was in church singing a duet with her daughter. From being a prisoner in her home to giving a duet publicly, giving glory to God with their daughter in church. That's what God can do. And so we give glory to him for his wonderful transformation. I think one of the reasons that God uses this approach is because it helps us to get visual aids. And I like to um, uh, use my, my time in this session to give you some other visual aids that might be useful. And uh, I'll just block this for a minute. So... <clears throat> Now, let me give you an object lesson about salvation, all right? I'll let my right hand represent God, and I'll put this white glove on to represent God's holiness. So that represents God and his holiness. And I'll put this glove on my left hand here. And this represent God represents God creating Adam. So here's Adam and Eve. This is Adam created in God's image to have fellowship with God. God creates Adam in innocence, and so... Adam can walk with God in the cool of the day and enjoy paradise and fellowship with the Lord in the beginning. But for this fellowship to be genuine and freely bestowed, then it, there needs to be an opt-out clause. And there was a, uh, a prohibition, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, when Adam violated that covenant, remember we said that he would die that very day, God warned him. Well, I'll let this wallet represent sin. When Adam chose to disobey God and try to live independently of God, then Adam sinned. And that sin separated him from God. But also that sin condemned Adam. So I'm going to put on a black glove here. And the Bible says that by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam became condemned because of his sin legally, so he sinned, but also he was judged a sinner. And so when you and I are born, we are born condemned in Adam. And then you and I sin on our own as well. So here we are still separated from God. We're born separated from him. And no amount of um, good works. Here's some good works. Uh, no amount of good works can compensate for the fact that sin still separates us from God. And friends, that's why uh, no religion uh, is able to reconcile us to God. We need the sin problem dealt with. So how does God deal with that? Once again, this hand representing God, God the Son leaves heaven's glory, and he, being born of the Virgin Mary, does not inherit the condemnation that you and I do when we're born the natural way, Okay. So he lives as the second Adam, the last man, and he lives a perfect life. He never sinned. So he completely fulfills the law of God. But he says, I've come not to be served, uh, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. So when our Lord Jesus dies on the cross, he takes Adam's sin, he takes our sin, and he literally becomes sin for us. I could actually put on this black glove and represent it this way. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, Christ, who knew no sin, remember, he was holy, he became sin for us. Okay, He became sin for you and me. He was buried. He rose again from the dead, hallelujah, uh, in victory. And he uh, has ascended and lives today in glory. And so, uh, if we believe in him, the Bible says that we, we who are sinners, might become the righteousness of God in Him. So, friends, when you and I recognize that we have inherited Adam's sin, that we have our own sin, that we're separated from God, when we receive Christ as our Savior, God totally forgives us, and He imputes to us the righteousness of Christ, so that once again we are reconciled to a holy, righteous God. Amen. And that's the glory of our salvation: that not only are our sins forgiven, but God has imputed to us the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, praise the Lord for his redemption and the fact that we have forgiveness, but also the gift of his righteousness. So that's another object lesson that you might might want to consider. Uh, if you have your Bibles um, with you, I'll show you another object lesson that many have found helpful. This is in John chapter 14. John 14. And those of you who like arts and crafts, Um, basically you start with a large envelope and you you write uh, the name God on the outside envelope and then you get three other envelopes, one smaller than the other, and you label them. And I'll demonstrate this in a moment. John 14, verse 20. At that day you shall know that I am in my Father and ye in me and I in you. He's talking about when the Holy Spirit comes that believers will be spiritually united with him. Uh, Earlier, he says that the Holy Spirit has been with the disciples. He will be in them. So when you and I are saved, because it's after the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. Appreciate Brother John's book um, about revival. He talks about how we're baptized into Christ, but also the Holy Spirit comes into us. We're in him. He's in us. And that's what this verse is saying. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. So here's how this object lesson works. This large envelope represents God. Okay? John 14, 20. Our Lord says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father. So we'll pull out this envelope. See, Jesus is in God the Father. They're in spiritual union. But he also says you will realize that you as believers are in me. So there you are in Jesus. Okay? But he also says, And you will discover that I am in you. So the Holy Spirit is in you as a believer representing the life and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? So let me just walk you through that once again as I put the envelopes back together. What this is saying, friends, is that whatever comes to your life in 2017, okay, first of all, it has to be filtered through the providential permission of God. Then we see because Christ is in the Father, it has to go through Jesus, right? And he says, you are in me. So that situation reaches you, but when it reaches you, it doesn't reach you as an individual on your own by yourself, but it also reaches you with Christ in you by the Holy Spirit. Amen? So friends, you are in Christ. He is in you. And with that awareness of spiritual union, then that pops the balloon of loneliness because you're never alone. He is in you. You are in him. And we can have that conscious communion with him day by day. Does that mean that friendships aren't important, that fellowship isn't valuable? Of course not. Uh, We do need to enjoy one another's fellowship. But for that fellowship to be more than just uh, talking about football and drinking tea, we need to really be celebrating the life of Christ in us and strengthen that life as we fellowship together. All right. Well, I'd like to show you another illustration. And now if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, the illustration I'd like to share with you next is about uh, the Old Testament. Now, some of you might not be as familiar with the Old Testament, so I'll just review some things in a moment. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is saying that what happened in, in these Old Testament years, although it's real redemption history, is also... Illustrative, it's also symbolic. And in First Corinthians ten one and following, he says, Moreover, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the children of Israel in Egypt. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did eat the same spiritual meat, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. It goes on to talk about a number of other of lessons that come through that passage. So let me show you something here um, as we proceed. Now this illustration about um, the abundant life uses the kind of a map, okay? A map of the children of Israel. And uh, I believe you have a handout. On one, one side of that handout, uh, there's a map of Egypt, wilderness, Canaan. I was looking at a map of Ireland uh, a day or two ago and just looking at the geography and, and that sort of thing. It's a fascinating uh, tool to have. And this is kind of a diagram that reminds us of what you read about in the book of Exodus. So you've got Genesis, Exodus. So this is in the book of Exodus. But also we see that in the book of Numbers, uh, the, the people of Israel, instead of going into the promised land, ended up being sidetracked for 40 years. So that's in the book of Numbers. And then in the book of Joshua, they actually enter into Canaan, the promised land. So uh, just to remind you here, um, in this diagram, over here on the left, that represents Egypt. Uh, and back then, you know, the, were, uh, the pyramids were there, and the people of Israel were enslaved to, to build store cities under Pharaoh. They were in bondage in Egypt. And then the Red Sea was kind of like the border of the the land of Egypt. And God actually parted the Red Sea when he delivered Israel. And they parted, uh, they they were delivered from Egypt and crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then we see uh, in the wilderness, they went to Mount Sinai where God gave his covenant to the people of Israel. Um, But they got to uh, the border of Canaan, the book of Numbers tells us. And instead of going into the promised land straight away, They sent out 12 spies, and for 40 days, the spies checked out the land and uh, discovered that the land was good. This is on, right? Good. So um, they discovered that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It was pretty amazing. But they came back, and they gave a negative report. They said, there are walled cities over there. There are giants. We saw some huge, you know, giants. There's no way we can beat them. And even though God commissioned them to go in and take the land, they due to rebellion and unbelief, said can't be done. So 10 of the 12 spies said, no, can't be done. Joshua and Caleb said, if God could deliver us from Egypt, then he can deliver us into the promised land. Let's obey him and trust him. Well, the people of Israel believed the 10 spies and they rebelled against God. They refused to believe. And so for every day, the spies checked out Canaan. For every one of those days, there was a year of wandering in the wilderness until that unbelieving generation perished. Then the book of Joshua A much happier story. God says to Joshua, Moses, my servant has died. Now lead my people into the promised land. And it's amazing that as they uh, lead the children of Israel into the Jordan, which was running at flood stage, just like the boundary to the land of Canaan. um, As they carried the Ark of the Covenant into the river, God stopped the river upstream, supernaturally. Just like he parted the Red Sea, he stopped the Jordan River and they all crossed over. And once they were all over the other side, they got 12 stones from the riverbed to make a memorial and then God allowed the river to run at flood stage once again. Now, that basic redemption history, that outline of what God did in the Old Testament is also a picture of the the Christian experience. So let's look at some parallels here friends. Number 1, and they kind of go from left to right here. Um, Just like the children of Israel were in bondage for 400 years in Egypt, so when you and I are born into this world, we're in in Satan's domain. We're under the bondage of sin. But when we're saved here now, uh, even though we're saved and headed to heaven, then we may have Egypt, so to speak, in self. Okay, And uh, when we experience Christ as our life, Romans 6, 7, and 8 message, then self is dispossessed. Remember the... The Christ-centered diagram where self is off to the side and Christ is in the center. So that's representing uh, living in the promised land, the land of Canaan. So the land of Canaan is not primarily uh, a picture of heaven. It's a picture of the abundant life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. That's getting you out of Egypt, but also life more abundantly. That's getting you out of the wilderness into Canaan. You follow me? Okay. Okay. Let's look at the second um, line here of some parallels. Uh, When we were unsaved, we are under uh, Satan's dominion. We are under bondage to Satan. But when we're saved, if we're not letting Christ be our life source, we can be in bondage to self, right? We can be stuck with our old, our negative identity, our old flesh patterns, living, walking according to the flesh. By the way, one thing that you'll really be fascinated by if you spell self backwards and add an H, it's flesh. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Okay? If you spell self backwards and add an H, you got flesh. So it's the same thing, really. Um, but when we uh, trust Christ as our life source, then we're, we're really in the royal category of being in bondage to, to Christ in, in a positive sense of him being our, our Lord. In Egypt, it's like we could say that... that um, we were stuck with the penalty of our sin. When we're saved, but if self is in the center, then the problem is carnality, immaturity, and belief. When we cross the Jordan River into the Galatians 2.20 relationship, that's where maturity can really move forward. When we're unsaved, we were convicted by the Holy Spirit of our need for a Savior. If we're saved, but self is in the center, then the Holy Spirit is disciplining us because He doesn't want us to be content with self in the center of our life. But as we uh, yield to Christ as our life source, then we're allowing the Holy Spirit to control our life. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number five, when we're unsaved, Christ was our judge. When we are saved but self is in the center, Christ is our Savior and Lord. However, it's only when we... Identify with him by faith that we really celebrate Christ as our life. Colossians chapter three, verses one to four talks about this. Verse four says, "When Christ who is our life, isn't that great? Christ is our life. When he appears, we shall appear with him in glory, as our banner up here talks about. And then number six, when we are unsaved, we were under the control of Satan. Uh, when we're redeemed but living in defeat, Satan is kind of beating up on us because we're not walking in victory. Um, but only when we trust Christ as our Lord and our life and our liberator, now uh, we're able to do damage to Satan's kingdom. Now, friends, um, you may not be happy to hear this, but when Christ is the center of our life, because we can be a weapon against Satan's kingdom, sometimes spiritual warfare increases. But aren't you glad that you're seated in heavenly places? So when you submit to God and resist the devil, he is a defeated foe. There's nothing to worry about, but we need to keep our armor on, right? Ephesians chapter 6 as we walk into Canaan. So just as God miraculously parted the Red Sea and they were identified with Moses as their leader, so we see that when God told Joshua to lead the children of Israel across into Canaan, they needed to trust God radically. Now imagine if you were um, Mr. Cohen (laughs) and carrying the Ark of the Covenant And uh, you're saying to Joshua, yes, sir, okay, we get the idea. We need to cross the Jordan, but there's no tunnel, there's no bridge, and the river's running at flood stage. How are we going to do this? Joshua says, God is telling us that as you step into the Jordan River, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the chest where, you know, God's presence was revealed, uh, when you carry the Ark of the Covenant, as you step in, God is going to stop the river. Are you sure about that, Joshua? (laughs) I mean, they had to take him at his word, right? That God really said that. Well, they they obeyed. They trusted and obeyed. And as they carried the ark into the Jordan, as they stepped in, the water did subside. God stopped the river upstream. By the way, uh, the name of the town where that landslide or whatever it was stopped the river, the town's name was Adam. God stops the river. They stand in the in the middle of the Jordan, Two or three million Israelites cross over. They take the 12 stones and they make a monument. So in the decades to come, the children could say, what are those pile of stones about? Uh, Son or daughter, let me tell you. That's when God split the Jordan River and we entered into Canaan. The selfish prayer from last night, friends, that could be your 12 stones. Okay? That could be a a remembrance of you claiming Galatians 2.20 for yourself. Notice that there's parallels here. Your salvation is by grace through faith. But also we see that the abundant life is by grace through faith. In the Red Sea, the truth that Christ is your substitute. In the Jordan River, you died with him. So there are some very fascinating parallels there. So that's, um, that illustration is like showing you that the redemption history of Israel is kind of a map that also symbolizes salvation uh, and identification with Christ. So anyone have a comment? Does that make sense to you? Any, any feedback from you as to if that's helpful or if there's anything I can maybe clarify if I misspoke myself or something? Any comments or questions? Now, they didn't have a GPS back then, okay? They had, they had to use uh, that pillar of cloud and by day and pillar of fire by night. God's presence led them on and God's presence will lead us on. But any, any comments about uh, those three illustrations and this one in particular? Now's your chance. Any comment? Is it making sense? Okay. Anything you want to say about? if you want to add to it or clarify something? Of course, we are, we are growing spiritually in the wilderness years, but it's when we identify with Christ that it really frees us up to mature because it's, it's realizing that it's Christ living through us rather than us trying to imitate Christ. So we think that's a key aspect of maturity. Yeah. Thank you. Any other comments? That's an excellent question. And sometimes on a whiteboard, you can kind of draw you know, uh, the Red Sea and draw the Jordan River and kind of label them and explain this and ask. And let's ask ourselves uh, this morning, where are we? If there's someone here today and he or she has not received Christ as personal Savior and Lord, then we're still in Egypt. We might believe intellectually that Jesus is who he claimed to be, but we're still in Egypt. Um, When you read the book of Exodus, remember how God gave them a provision. You see, the 10th plague in Egypt, because the Egyptians were, um, they were killing the children of Israel, you know, the boys throwing them into the Nile and oppressed Israel for so long. So God was judging Egypt for their idolatry, and there were the 10 plagues as Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. The 10th one was the death of the firstborn, remember? And so God said that there is a provision for people to be delivered from judgment, and that provision was they were to take an innocent lamb and they were to sanctify that lamb set it apart then they were to um, to kill that lamb and uh, have a passover meal and actually uh, roast that lamb and have a communal meal then they were to take the blood and they were to apply it to their doorpost the lintel and as they applied that blood to the top and the sides i imagine the blood dripping down would remind them of a cross they would apply the blood and then the angel of judgment would pass over their household because the angel would see the blood. And friends, in First Corinthians 5, 7 through 9, it says Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So just as the Israelites had to apply the blood to their own home, you and I need to apply the blood to our own life to be saved. So as my wife said, if we're... If we haven't done that, we're still in Egypt. But if we're saved, we're out of Egypt, hallelujah. But maybe, maybe we're sidetracked in the wilderness like the children of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't love the Lord, that we haven't been used of God. God did some wonderful things during those 40 years. They were victories, but they were terrible defeats as well. But he provided for them manna, you know, and he guided them. However, they were not living out of that fruit and honey potential uh, during those years. God's plan A was for them to submit and go into Canaan. Instead, they wandered for 40 years. So for most people that we counsel, um, they they recognize that actually they've been sidetracked in the wilderness. And so they come to realize the union with Christ's message, and they more fully surrender to him, and then claim by faith Christ is their life and cross the Jordan. You see, at Mount Sinai, God's intention was for them to recognize that he is the true and living God. He Delivered them from Egypt. And he says, I am the God who delivered you. Therefore, this is how you are to live. However, they broke the law. Even before the hard copies got off the mountain, they were breaking the law, right? So uh, they were not recognizing his sovereignty. And uh, they refused to submit to God when he said to enter into Canaan because for four centuries, God waited to see if the Canaanites would repent of their wickedness and child-sacrificing ways, and they didn't. So God was judging the Canaanites simultaneously with commissioning Israel to live in the promised land. But they refused to trust God at his word, take him at his word. But fast forward 40 years, here's Joshua. God says, now it's time to lead them across. Finally, in Joshua chapter 1, we see the the good news where they say to Joshua, yes, sir, whatever you say, we will do. (laughs) Right answer. (laughs) You know, Joshua says, sanctify yourself. And they say, yes, sir, whatever you say, we will do. They finally submit. Then they can trust and cross over. So friends, the selfish prayer that we talked about last night, that's it, is saying, I can't cross on my own strength. I yield fully to God's will for my life and I'm going to accept by faith my heavenly Joshua. By the way, the Hebrew name Joshua is the same name as Jesus in the New Testament. So Jesus is the one that takes us in to life more abundant. So here we have the Egypt, Will and His Canaan picture. Yes. well that 's a good that 's a good point because the Christ Center life is not just an achievement it 's a relationship It's um, it 's not an attainment it 's an obtainment so you 're right it's it 's a daily thing sometimes we can we can kind of circle back and and forfeit some of those privileges. Another way to think about it is once you cross the Jordan, you have a new awareness that Christ is in you remember the envelopes he 's in you you 're in him so there 's like that paradigm shift we talk about but we 're going to say that even in Canaan they had Strongholds to tear down. And they had a choice of whether to obey or disobey. Remember Achan who disobeyed and forfeited his, his life because of disobedience. So even in Canaan, we can have failures and faults and things. So we're not sailing, saying we're perfect. We still need to keep maturing. So maybe that, that's how, probably how I would um, put in the imagery there. Yes, we can forfeit our victory. Technically, we're in Canaan because we're aware of Christ as our life. But we're missing out on some of the victory that he can offer to us. So they had to repent of of known sin and come back and trust god's provision and then they had the 31 victories that joshua talks about well speaking of those victories let me show you one other um, chart on the other side of your set of notes um, we have uh, an expansion of this a little bit and i apologize if the wording here doesn't line up exactly because i've I did this chart back in the year 2000 and I keep kind of uh, going through different versions. So, but uh, I, what, what I'd like to talk about is that when the children of Israel cross the Jordan River, there are actually two other stages that we need to consider. And so this third category, if you look here on your, your chart here, the third category, <clears throat> if you look at what it is, is we call it liberation. And the focus is freedom in Christ. And... The obstacle is strongholds. Now, what is a stronghold? A stronghold is an area of deception in our life that's restricting our freedom. And it can be a sin pattern. It can be some uh, blockage to our spiritual growth and potential. And so they're in Canaan, but they can be uh, experiencing um, you know, these strongholds. Now, the Old Testament picture here is the conquering of walled cities. So let's go back to our story of Joshua. They cross the Jordan River. God parts the river. They cross over. But then they have these walled cities. Now, when God parted the Jordan River, that was the evacuation notice for the Canaanites. All right? If they wanted to leave, now was the time. If they refused to, then they would face God's judicial uh, army. So God told Joshua that they were to march around Jericho. Remember the story? Um, once a day for seven days, you know, with the Ark of the Covenant, basically saying this belongs to God and you all need to get out of here. (laughs) The paraphrase. Um, And if they refused, then seven laps in the seventh day and then they shouted. And what happened? Children, what happened to the walls of Jericho? Boom, right? They fell down. God knocked down the walls around the city of Jericho. And just as God uh, defeated Jericho and knocked down those walls, Hebrews 11 tells us that it's by faith that the walls of Jericho fell. So if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 10, let me show you a parallel here. 2 Corinthians 10 describes that if as a believer, even a believer who's come to the spiritual awakening conference and has had their white funeral and has prayed the selfish prayer, we may have a stronghold or two that needs to come down. And uh, that means that there might be still some blockage or some wrong idea that needs to be replaced with truth. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 10, let me draw your attention to verses 3 to 5. 2 Corinthians ten three. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but mighty through God to pull down strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and brings into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So what this is saying, friends, is that just as Jericho was um, preventing Israel from occupying the land of their full potential, uh, so there may be a false belief that's still in your noggin, still in your belief system, and is hindering your freedom. Now, remember the verse in John chapter 8 where our Lord says, you shall know the truth and the truth will do what? Set you free. Question. If the truth sets us free, what would deception do to you? Right? It would rob you of your freedom, right? So if truth sets us free, deception will restrict our freedom. So what God is, is saying to you and me is that we need to Allow God's word to filter our belief system. And if God shows you something you believe that's not true, what do we need to do? Just like the children of Israel going around uh, Jericho, we need to identify that lie. And then we need to renounce it as a lie and replace it with truth. Just like they shouted in triumph, we need to declare God's truth, which will dislodge that lie and replace it with truth. And you have instant freedom every time you do that. There's an evangelist in New York State that I've been um, coaching over the telephone and using, uh, we call it FaceTime, you know, like Skype kind of thing, where internet um, conversation. And he knew he was learning this message, but he was still stuck with uh, a lot of baggage from his past. And so we went on to phase three, and I led him through some information that's called The Seven Steps to Freedom in Christ. And there was some major blockages in his life. Even though he loved the Lord, he was an evangelist. He's about 64 years of age, uh, various health problems. His pattern in his life was manic depressive. So sometimes he'd go way up with excitement and, and uh, happiness, but then just kind of whew, down and into deep depression. And by the way, psychological labels are really man-made labels. And, and what typically we see... In counseling, is that manic is when our circumstances are favorable, and our coping mechanisms are successful, then we can go onto this manic stage where we think, "Hey, I got, I got uh, this all figured out. I'm, I'm doing great." And we might have, we might go too high, you know, and maybe not even get enough sleep, and and forfeit a balanced life, and we run out of petrol, okay, and then down we go, and so the low is when we realize that we can't do it and circumstances overtake us and we feel like life isn't worth living and there it is. So that's the manic depressive cycle. So this brother and an advocate who was with them, we went through the freedom of Christ process. I'll call it phase three. And there was some major issues. Every every one of these categories, you know, he identified things, he renounced it, he replaced it with truth. And you could just see his countenance go from gloom to brighter and brighter. Well, as he went through this uh, process, it was so exciting to see that the Galatians 2.20 message, which he had been learning intellectually, really became more and more meaningful to him. Well, he, um, he has now been ordering uh, Grace Discipleship materials, and now he's mentoring other people. It's a good sign that you're in victory when you start to care about others and share your victory with them. And he also has this rich baritone voice. And uh, Sometimes we'd end at cal success. She said, "Let me sing, let me sing." He was so excited, and he would sing this you know gospel song. It was really cool. And um, uh, somehow, in his in a city in, in New York um, at Christmas time, he started to go around caroling in his, his town. And a news reporter heard about him caroling and actually gave you know got him on the news uh, singing Christmas carols. So he went from being totally defeated and depressed to being so uh, joyful that he's going around singing Christmas carols. And he said, John, guess what? I'm on the news. I said, well, praise the Lord. You're letting your light shine. Uh, But that's how how the freedom of Christ process uh, can be very meaningful. Um, So this third category of freedom of Christ is where we renounce lies, replace them with truth. And uh, let's go back to the children of Israel. The first half of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1-12, to is the process of the Israelites' having these 31 victories in Canaan. Well, after those victories, the Central Campaign, the Southern Campaign, the Northern Campaign, the second half of the book of Joshua, 12 to 24, they were basically um, occupying the land where the 12 tribes were given different regions. Remember that? To occupy. So we believe that the occupying of the land is a symbol of our ongoing Christian discipleship. Okay? So... Not only is freedom in Christ important, but ongoing discipleship is important too. Now, when God showed me this back in the year 2000, um, my journey was that, as I mentioned earlier, I was raised in a Christian home, uh, had gone uh, through Bible college and seminary. But what I had been doing was I was jumping from one over to four, and I was trying to disciple people and uh, challenging them to be obedient and involved in Christian work without showing them the message of identification and without helping them get free in Christ. And so often people would be stuck in Romans 7, like we heard about yesterday, because they didn't know their identity in Christ. So through Handbook to Happiness and through the Grace Fellowship training, I learned about this second category, about union with Christ and uh, how the self-life was the obstacle and it was like crossing the Jordan River and so forth. And then I had some training with, uh, with Freedom of Christ Ministries and learned how to lead people through a truth encounter process. And that was really exciting to see God use that in people's lives as well. And then I saw how Romans follows this very pattern. Because in Romans chapter 1 to 5, that is redemption, that's salvation. Romans 6, 7, and 8, which Brother Johnson preaching on, is about identification with Christ or our sanctification in Him. Then Romans 9 to 11 is really about freedom in Christ because it's almost as if before Paul talks about the practical Christian living in Romans 12, it's almost like someone says, excuse me, Paul, uh, could you wait a minute? All right, what's wrong? Paul, you're saying that God promised Israel the Messiah? That's right. And Jesus is the promised Messiah, right? But Israel as a nation rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So does that mean God's plan has failed? See, that was an obstacle. That was a false belief. That was an issue that had to be addressed. It was, I guess we could call it a freedom of Christ issue. So Romans chapter 9, Paul answers the question. It's the remnant of Israel that God is dealing with. Romans chapter 10, the gospel has been given to Israel. And many Israelites have come to know Christ and can by calling upon him as their savior. And Romans chapter 11, the imagery of the olive tree. If a Jewish person rejects Jesus as their Messiah, They're like a branch broken off of the olive tree. But if they receive Christ as their Messiah, they're grafted back in. And at the end of the age, there will be a national awakening, I believe, where uh, Zechariah talks about how at the end of the age, they will look upon him whom they pierced. Literally, says, they will look upon me, Jehovah says, whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. There will be a national awakening and God will graft Israel back into their olive tree. And then he ends by saying, who can fully understand the ways of God? So he answers that objection. He tears down that stronghold of, uh, has God's plan failed? No, God's plan hasn't failed. God is faithful. And then chapter 12 and following, therefore, use your spiritual gifts, submit to legitimate authority, be involved in missions, uh, respect biblical scruples, and chapter 16, say hi to everybody. Okay, that's how the book ends. So that's how the book of Romans describes this. So, friends, can you see my problem when I was trying to go from evangelism and jumping over to try to do discipleship, right? Getting people to try to be busy for God and dedicated without having the power of their identification and their freedom. So trying to, to be dedicated and obedient without your identity and without freedom in Christ is a very miserable experience. That's why Paul says at the end of Romans 7, "O rich man that I am, who will deliver me? We have to thank our way out of Romans 7, as we heard. So let's uh, apply this to to personal ministry, such as counseling. A woman comes for counseling, as as, uh, happened years ago. And this lady was a Bible college graduate, married, um, two small children, but raised uh, without a really uh, accepting father figure in her life, was uh, going to a Bible school that was legalistic, just all performance-based. And so she was very depressed. She was uh, discouraged, anxious. She had an eating disorder, bulimia. And um, as we walk through this process, remember this is a heart-focused process. You don't start with, you know, the symptom. You start with simply stepping them through the issue of using the wheel diagram. I took her history, led her step by step. Well, when, when she understood the line diagram message that God took her out of Adam, grafted her into Christ, she says in her testimony, it was like a football stadium where they turned the lights on. It's like, you know, she realized who she was in Christ. God opened her eyes to it. She got the joy of her salvation. God lifted her out of her depression. So as she continued to be discipled in the victorious life, you know, she was gaining confidence and having more joy. And then I asked her, well, what about the eating disorder? Well, that's still a problem. So well, let's just... Uh, Let's go through the freedom of Christ process a bit more. And so we, we went through more of the truth encounter. We also, uh, sometimes you might call it a healing encounter where you can ask the Holy Spirit to whisper truth into your heart. And, and we had uh, some healing prayer together and God showed her some things that needed to be dealt with. And then after that freedom, then the eating disorder was taken care of and she went on to disciple others. So that's an another example of how each of these phases is important. I remember uh, a couple that um, came to Grace Fellowship and the the wife wanted counseling. She actually um, had a breakdown and went into the hospital uh, during the Easter weekend. What a way to celebrate Easter, being in the hospital with a nervous breakdown. So she goes in like Thursday or Friday, comes out on Monday and called the pastor of her church. She was referred to Grace Fellowship. So the car pulls in the driveway of our Grace Fellowship office. She walks to the front door. And she, she says, i like an appointment. So we give her a handbook to happiness and the rejection books and paperwork. And she said, well, my husband isn't interested, but I've been in the hospital this weekend and I hear that you offer biblical counseling. Yeah, I'd love to walk with you. Okay, you know, I'm in. So she took the literature and, and uh, the paperwork. And I said, well, let me, let me meet your husband. She looked at me like, you sure you want to? Um, that should have been a signal to me that one reason she wasn't too happy. So I walk out to the car Walk around in the car, introduce myself, and the fellow rose down the window, what is this place anyway, you know? And so you could tell he wasn't a very happy camper, you know? And, uh, hi, my name's John, you know? <laughs> and so I introduced myself, and he wasn't too happy about his wife getting counseling. But anyway, she walked through the counseling process, and her presenting problem was depression and anxiety because she was in a marriage where her husband really wasn't considerate. She was a believer, came to Christ, um, Um, As an adult, he did too. After they were married, he hadn't really grown spiritually. She had grown but hadn't learned about surrender or identification. So her presenting problem was depression. She was on psychotropic meds since she was a teenager. At this point, she was about 60 years of age um, uh, in a kind of a toxic marriage. But again, as heart specialists, you might say, we don't start with the symptom. We start with what? The heart. The Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence. From the heart flows the issues of life. So she was the one willing to come for counseling. We tend to counsel couples individually. So as she walked through the process, it was so wonderful to see her unpack the grace message, to surrender to Christ, to give her marriage to God, to give her rights to God, to uh, to discover her union with Christ, that she wasn't in Adam, she was in Christ, she had a new identity. She appropriated Christ as her life by faith. She walked through the steps to freedom. And then I remember after she was growing in this message, she said, I'm really sensing that the Holy Spirit wants me to go off my psychotropic medications. I said, really? Yeah, I I know I've been taking them for, at this point, 35 years or or so. Well, um, let me give you some information about it. See, as we're not medical doctors, so we don't tell people to take or not take medicine. But I said, here's some information on that subject by uh, evangelical Christians who've done a lot of research on that. And when she came back to me after reading the research, she found out that a lot of times psychotropic medications actually make matters worse instead of better. And she, she says, I, I'm really convinced that God is leading me to go off the medication. I said, well, how would you like to do that? She said, I think I just need to go cold turkey uh, to just walk away from it. But he said, I can't do that at home because, you know, my, my husband is not very supportive she so, said, well, we have a neighbor, a retired woman, loves the Lord. She said that you'd be able to live with her for a couple of weeks and go through the, your detox. So she did that. She uh, she just, uh, Gatorade, do you have Gatorade here? It's, it's kind of like a sports drink that has, you know, nutrients in it. Um, but she got Gatorade and God, and she, she just kept drinking, you know, this this health drink. And uh, she got very, very ill as all the toxins were coming out of her body, and, and she was just totally miserable. Only the grace of God could carry you through that detoxification process. Some of you know how difficult detoxing is, and we cheer you on that you've made that step. But for her, it was it was legal medication, but it was uh, medication that was really detrimental in terms of her ultimate well-being. So she went through that process, and, and she said when she got past those difficult days, she said my, the colors were brighter. I could taste my food better. I had I uh, had more vibrant health, and so she just was just radiant. Well, meanwhile, her husband was still, you know, crawling along, you know, um, as a self-centered, uh, you know, carnal Christian. And so now we get to the issue of phase four, all right? Now, what about her marriage? Well, then I share with her some concepts about boundaries in marriage. And uh, she said to her husband, I really want this marriage to work, but I'm not willing to continue uh, in this marriage, if you're going to continue to treat me the way you've been treating me. So if you're willing to come for counseling, I'd be happy to be reconciled. Now, she'd been away detoxing. And instead of coming home, she kind of laid out, she met with her husband and laid out these, uh, these boundaries. Well, a couple weeks went by and I didn't know what he would do. But finally, he called saying, yeah, I want to come in for counseling. Answered a prayer. So, uh, this you know, his wife comes in hadn't seen him in a couple of weeks. She comes into the counseling room. The car pulls in the driveway it's the same fellow who had been so grumpy before, and so he walks to the front door and I go out to the main office there to meet him, welcoming him. He said, "You know the walk from my car to the front door was the longest walk of my life, <laughs> and uh, he humbles himself. We talked for about half an hour there at the front desk as I try to reassure him that it was okay and we walked into the other room where his wife was waiting for him and he sat down next to her and he said, well, I'm here because I realize that I have a problem. Right answer. So he walked through the process. He repented of mistreating his wife. He surrendered to the Lord. He discovered his union with Christ. He went through this process. They reconciled. Their marriage was restored. They got our training. And now they're sharing this message with others. He, he's in a praise team at his church and she's counseling others uh, in addiction recovery using the grace message. So that's a picture, friends, of how each one of these stages is important for an overall grace discipleship process and also is very strategic in counseling. So where are you on the map? If you're in Egypt, then you need to come to know Christ as the Lamb of God. If you're in the wilderness, you need to know him as your Lord and your very life. Maybe you're in Canaan, you know him as your life, and you know know him as your liberator who is able to set you free from any residual strongholds. Remember the first day we showed you the Father's Love Letter? Remember that film? Uh, It's at fathersloveletter.com if you want to see it again. But if you have a wrong idea of God, that's a stronghold, right? So we need to exchange that wrong idea, renounce that, replace it with truth. God loves you. He's for you. He's faithful. He's good. So that's an example of a, common stronghold legalism can be a stronghold per, you know doing 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 in order to be well no it's being in order to do ephesians two ten says we are god's workmanship created in christ jesus that's grace unto good works see that being in order to do unto good works which god has before ordained that we should walk in them christ has come to give us life that's out of egypt but also life what more abundantly that's life in canaan So I hope, friends, that this object lesson, this map, will be a useful tool for you. Tonight, what we'd like to do is look at one common stronghold, which is unforgiveness, and kind of walk through a biblical approach to uh, the freedom of forgiveness. Yes, sir, in the back? Yes, sir? Any comment? Great, great question. Technically, that's, that's um, ongoing discipleship, which is, of course, important from the moment you're saved on. <clears throat> but um, discipleship, which is technically phase four in terms of communion, baptism, um, Bible reading, prayer, all those things are vital. When you understand who you are in Christ and you're trusting Christ to live through you, then those disciplines become opportunities instead of chores. You know, For example, Bible reading, The woman who had depression and the eating disorder, remember that? She just saw Bible reading as a chore. So one day she asked me, John, could I ask you a question about the Bible? Sure. She said, why do you read the Bible? I said, because I want to. She looked at me like, (laughs) because she was so used to it being a chore, right? But when you realize that Christ is your life, then just like you enjoy food, God's word is food, right? Prayer. If we see it as a chore that I have to pray a certain amount of time so that God accepts me, then it becomes a chore. It becomes a duty. It doesn't have joy. But when, as we heard from Romans 8, God's spirit says, Abba, Daddy, it's, it's an opportunity. It's a, it's a grace discipline that actually helps us to grow. So what I'm trying to say is, is that these valid aspects of the Christian life, when they're given from a grace perspective, are so much more edifying and so much more, Uh, enjoyable because they have a grace perspective of Christ as our life. So all those are important, but in context. Well, you've you've been really very attentive. I appreciate your attention. And uh, feel free to discuss some of these issues with me after our break. Brother John's going to do a sermon on Galatians to tie a lot of this in through the Word. But let's have a word of prayer as we conclude. Lord, we thank you so much that Christ is our Lamb who took our place on the cross so we could be totally forgiven. Thank you that Jesus is our Lord, so we don't have to chart our own path. We can trust you as our king and our leader. Lord, thank you that Christ is our very life, so we don't have to live life in our own strength and out of our own resources. Thank you, Lord, that Christ is our liberator. So set us free from wrong beliefs and patterns that are holding us back. And Lord, thank you that he is our leader. Lord, lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. By your grace. Thank you for each one who is here. Bless and encourage each one. And bless our fellowship time as we continue in the word today. In Jesus name. Amen. Thank you so much.